everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm your host, Charles Maxwood, and this week we're talking to Michael Galarnik. Uh, now, Michael, you are a developer relations or in developer relations at any scale. You are an author. I, I need to find your book title. What, what's your book title? <laughs> well, not necessarily an author. I write a lot. I'm a LinkedIn learning author. So like I make oh, courses okay. and stuff like that. Yeah. That sounds more smarter or, or than anyway. You're an instructor, Stanford Continuing Studies. I'm feeling inadequate now. <laughs> um, you have, you said you're approaching 10,000 followers on Medium, which is impressive. I remember getting 10,000 followers on Twitter and I was just like, yay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Medium, you're actually contributing to people, which is awesome. And yeah, some of your articles, were, that's how we found you, which is also exciting. I mean, there, there's just so much going on in the machine learning space that's exciting and, and impressive. And you're using some tools, mostly we've been talking about like TensorFlow, TensorFlow.js, things like that. You're kind of off in a little bit of a different tool set, different approach. And I was like, this looks cool. Let's let's dive into this. So I may ask you some pretty uh, basic questions about pandas and, and, and stuff like that and see where kind of you live I'm also not a Python developer by any means. So yeah, but let's dive in and talk about this approach and then we can kind of get into the nuts and bolts of what we're doing and see where we end up at. Does that sound good? Sure, sounds great. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Now, did I miss anything that would make you sound even smarter and myself a little less uh, adequate? No, I mean, you've got to just about everything. And All a right, lot of stuff deal. I do is very basic. So I think most people should be able to follow along. All right, good deal. So we invited you to talk about speeding up Scikit, learn model training. And this one's on the KD Nuggets, which isn't on Medium, incidentally. Just a side note, I'm kind of curious. How, how do you decide where these blog posts go? You know, one blog versus the other? Well, so a couple things. So it depends on who I'm writing for. So sometimes... Mm -hmm. Occasionally, I used to ghostwrite, so they would decide. And the article's out there in the wilderness and not associated with me in any way. But oftentimes, I decide I'll write it on my like Medium blog or whatever because it's easy. And then people would reach out like, hey, could I republish your blog post on my website right. with the canonical link linking back to the Medium blog? Okay. So, yeah. So, so is this one that, of those? Um, Key Nuggets so blog, actually, it is on Medium. And then okay. people want to republish it. So same thing with like other things I've written over time. Okay, good deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I occasionally get that for the podcasts as well, but typically it's more along the lines of the, yeah, the blog posts. I blog a whole lot less frequently than you do, though. But yeah, let's dive in here. So you wrote this blog post about Scikit Learn. Am I saying that right? Scikit Learn, yes. And 
yeah, just just kind of give us before we get too deep into this uh, rundown of Scikit-Learn because I've I've heard of pandas, but I haven't heard of uh, Scikit-Learn. So Scikit-Learn is a really easy library to use for machine learning, mm-hmm. um, and it's very much import the model you want to use, make an instance of your model, uh, fit your model data, and then predict. That's basically in real simplistic terms. The thing is, is that a lot of machine learning libraries by default only use a single core in a computer. So my MacBook, for example, that I'm doing this podcast on uh, has eight cores. And Mm -hmm. if I'm only using a single core, it's kind of inefficient, so to speak, because theoretically, assuming I had perfect parallelization, I could have an eight times speed up if I'm training my model and it was very parallelizable, all eight cores or all four cores, if you have four cores in your computer. So that's the idea of the, the article itself. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm on a MacBook Pro and yeah, I think it has eight cores as well. And yeah, same boat, right? Yeah, use all the cores, do all <laughs> the work, right? Yeah, you have a lot of resources and if you don't use them, then you're potentially wasting time or money depending on like what you care about. Yeah, I'm primarily a Ruby developer and we're getting a lot of parallelization tools and that's been kind of the discussion there for our programs is, yeah, how do we get the work running on more than one core so that we can, yeah, effectively get it done more efficiently so we can get what we want faster. So how do you go about doing this? What was that? The other thing I forgot to mention is if you're doing this on like AWS or Azure and you have an instance and it has all these cores you're not utilizing, you're wasting a lot of money. <laughs> mm, yep. No, that makes a lot of sense. Because absolutely, they do charge you by the core and for the memory and the storage. But yeah, by the core is one of the one of the parameters you're paying for. So you may as well take advantage of it. How do you how do you start go about getting this done? Well, so a couple of things. The first thing is decide if you actually need to utilize all the cores in your computer, mm-hmm. because if you're running things and it's already fast and efficient, well then what we're talking about is pretty useless. So the way you can really get this done is I can talk about other ways to speed up uh, model training where you don't have to utilize all your cores if you don't need to. But there's a backend uh, for scikit-learn called joblib. And essentially, you can switch out different execution engines, essentially, or backends, and uh, utilize all the cores in your computer. There's a lot of them. You've probably heard of them. Uh, so there's Loki, which you've probably not heard of. But there's Ray, there's multi-processing, there's Dask. And you can basically switch out Scikit-Learn's backends from like Joblib uh, with Loki backend to Ray, multi-processing, or Dask. So it's really just okay. about taking a different backend and then having it work for you. And these backends take care of things like uh, scheduling tasks across um, like your all your cores, dealing with other things. And of course, you can also not just parallelize them across your one computer you can also schedule it across different nodes. Mm-hmm. So if I consider my laptop like one node with let's say eight cores or four cores or whatever, Scikit-Learn also with Doblib's um, backend of Ray allows you to, uh, how should I say this, uh, make it work across multiple nodes or multiple computers. So I kind of just rambled all, all over that, but essentially just <laughs> use Doblib and uh, use a backend like Ray multiprocessing task. So, well, so, some of these libraries that I've used in the past across different technologies will use different. We'll use multiple processes instead of multiple threads. That's why I'm asking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So, I mean, like Ray itself is like a whole nother <laughs> ball game, which you can talk about later if you like. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Ray project, if you want to look it up on GitHub, it's basically like a core ecosystem, very general purpose that allows you to scale right. your Python applications without really writing them. You have decorators essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can make your you know, Python code running a single core, run multiple cores or across like multiple clusters or machines. Right. And it really just a way to make, it's a framework that handles machine failures pretty well and does things with high performance. So That makes sense. Yeah. So uh, one thing that I'm wondering about a little bit with some of this is that uh, if, as I've moved some programs from single core to multi-core, um, mm-hmm. I've run into like race conditions or other situations where I've run into concurrency issues. Are these algorithms set up in such a way to where that's not an issue? Or do you have to start thinking about setting, I don't know, mutexes or other other ways of isolating shared data in order to avoid certain issues? So the beauty about like these backends for second learn in this case, I mean, mostly backends can do other things, but Joblib in this case takes care of all that stuff for you. Okay. They've really hyper-optimized most of these processes for a lot of different algorithms. Uh, Certain backends do it better than others in certain cases. It's just about the implementation of a specific algorithm, Mm -hmm. but they're really, really good because scikit-learn itself is a very very popular library so they've optimized it there's edge cases if you have a live uh like a algorithm no one has used in like years maybe you'll have an issue but you don't have to think about it it really is change a couple lines of code and go oh nice okay that makes sense Mm -hmm. so then you just grab this job lib and this is specific to scikit-learn so you're not going to use it for anything else um it could be used for other things but for the most part that's how it's used okay at least in the context of this article so Joblib, just FYI, it's a tool for like lightweight pipelining in Python. So people use it for other things, but how I see it used, at least in the machine learning context for like scikit-learn is very, very straightforward. Okay. So how much glue code did you have to write then? Almost nothing. I mean, in okay. terms of like Joblib, it really is changing one line of code uh, for scikit-learn models. Like it's, it's really extraordinarily simple, which is how it really should be. So essentially when you're running an algorithm for scikit-learn, when you import your model, and then when you're making your instancer model, you can set an end jobs parameter. And this basically, you can specify how many cores you want, or if you want to make things run across from multiple machines. So for the core example, it really is just specifying cores. So n underscore jobs equals like four mm-hmm. cores or eight cores. Or if you can have it automatically detect how many cores you have in your computer as well. So, okay. Yeah. So you get in, you've got your algorithm, you hook this bad boy up and you say, okay, run across all my cores or run across a certain mm-hmm. number of my cores. It starts running your algorithm and doing the training. Can you, do you need this to run the model once it's trained or is this only for the training end of things? So... Are you saying it's typically only for the training end of things? Right. Yes, you probably can use it for predicting. But the idea is that the training process for machine learning just takes a lot longer right. than the prediction stage. So Yeah, because you're throwing all your data at it at once as opposed to whenever you have something you wanted to predict, right? Yeah. As far as making things fast for prediction, there's there's other ways to make that happen. Right. So that's almost never the bottleneck, at least right. in a lot of basic machine learning. No, that makes sense. 
for model surfing, that's very different. You want things to happen very quickly and there's ways to productionize machine learning. But mm-hmm. So, yeah, so you get this all hooked up, you're feeding data in. You can also uh, run it across multiple machines. How, how does that work? So that is probably a topic for another podcast, I would say. But really, uh, you first of all, you have to set up things on AWS. You oh, have okay. to choose the appropriate backend. So uh, typically for when you do things for like cross multiple machines. So Joblib has a couple of essentially execution engines they can use. Mm-hmm. So you can use like uh, Dask or Ray as an execution engine. And for that, you just have to make sure you choose Dask or Ray. If you try to use like Joblib's Loki backend or multi-processing backend, uh-huh. it doesn't really make much sense. It right. will just happen over multiple cores, not multiple machines. So if you use Dask or Ray, it'll just do it for you, essentially. Okay. I you can't like run it across a, a MacBook and then a Linux machine and then whatever else I have sitting around my office. If you do things very efficiently and the frameworks allow it. Typically, when you do this, though, you typically work over one operating system. That's right. the ideal case, right? Yep. I mean, I hope so, at least. Because most of these frameworks, when you have like multiple, like, uh, let's say you're using like large, like M5X, 5.8X large nodes, it all helps mm-hmm. if they're all the same. Or they're just AWS instances, rather than local machine right. and instance. I should note with all this that it comes with the caveat that some algorithms are more paralyzable than others. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, let's say for random forest, for example, where you ha- essentially have an ensemble model of a bunch of trees coming together to make a prediction. A random forest is very easy to paralyze because when you have your model, you essentially bootstrap data. So you have a bunch of sample to replacement data. And then from each of the bootstrap samples, then you grow decision trees, right? Those decision right. trees are really easy to grow apart from each other. Mm-hmm. And when you have that, it's really easy to paralyze. Whereas some algorithms, yes, it's you can paralyze them or there's tricks to make them paralyzable, but they're not as paralyzable as a random forest, for example. Right. So, mm-hmm. One thing I always tell, like when I teach students, is that whenever you choose a model, some models have advantages and disadvantages. Some of them are really understandable. Like you can tell your boss like, oh, here's how this model works really easily. Like typically the tree-based models. Some models are extraordinarily high performing. So if especially have a lot of data like neural networks and such, Mm -hmm. but they're not always as understandable. So different models, different strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm just trying to think through all the implications here. So when you're throwing your data on I'm assuming you have some kind of load balancer on the front end then that you just, you put all your data into one place and then it figures out where to send the yeah the data, right? Mm-hmm. It's pretty efficient. Most of these frameworks will take care of all that stuff for you, especially for scikit-learn, which is a very, like, very, very easy to use framework. The idea is that you don't have to manage that stuff yourself mm-hmm. as much. So it's highly efficient doing it itself. Right. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, then then you have a prediction model that you can just take and plug into whatever, yeah. you know, plug into scikit-learn on your local machine or onto a, a system in the cloud on in scikit-learn and it'll just run. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends. You can obviously pick a model if you want. Uh, mm-hmm. Use it from there. You can save the weights of the model and then productionize them to something else. Like, right. There's a lot of different things you can do. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or 
If you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So, so what have you done this with? Like what kinds of models have you cha- trained this way? So typically these days, at least for what I do, I do a lot of teaching. So a lot of my job is not actually programming anymore. It's really just showing students how to do it. So for the example I gave before, a lot of it's with random forests. Even for like logistic regression models, you can paralyze them. So if you have like some models are by default meant for like a single class classification. Mm-hmm. So like, is this cancer or is this not based on some entry level data? But if you have multi-classes for like the really simple digits, digits example, where you're trying to like classify something as one number, like zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And why you use logistic regression? I don't know. It's a terrible model for that. But essentially, if you have one versus many or one versus all, where you have multiple models and the most likely models would be line predicting, that's very paralyzable. So if you have a lot of these sort of models and you're trying to figure out like the small is you know, 65% confident it's this versus the same model is 40%, you choose the most common. So logistic regressions, the random force, the very simple sort of models is typically what mm-hmm. I use this for. Additionally, uh, if you want to do something like a, a gradient boosting model, this scikit-learn uh, framework is not going to be the most efficient for what you want to use or what you want to do. For that, you typically use like XGBoost or a gradient boosting framework. Gotcha. So let's let's change gears just a little bit because sure. I want to talk a little bit about blogging and developer. Is it developer advocacy that you're doing? So, uh, developer advocacy or advocacy, <laughs> developer advocate. So yeah. So I can say my job title properly, yes. (laughs) Maybe. And the teaching, I mean, that's all really fascinating as well. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the blogging first, because I've been running this developer influencer um, accelerator for folks, mostly focused around podcasting. And I'm I'm a little curious if somebody wanted to get into blogging, you know, do you have any words of wisdom for them? So the first thing, and this is probably the most important thing is you have to start and Uh And one thing about blogging is you don't have to know everything that you write as long as you source it. So like when I'm talking to you on a podcast, for example, I'm not always fresh on like, oh yeah, what did I do exactly or whatever. Blogging is a great way to learn. So think about why you're blogging so you actually land up doing it. Uh, That's probably the most important part. So for me, the first thing is decide why you're blogging and what your topic's going to be. So as far as choosing topic, decide like, are you blogging to get a job? Like get your name out there. Are you blogging just for fun? Are you trying to share your like works technology or your works like outcome? So it's like assessing your goals essentially. And as far as like choosing the specific topic, find out what's not out there, then try to put it mm-hmm. out there. If it's already out there, you can always do something better. A lot of blogs out there are really terrible. So if you do something better than <laughs> what's currently out there, you'll get views. If the goal is to get views, do something better than someone else has done. Yep. Their thing is like, once you publish a blog, you can always change it. So there are blogs I've had back in the day where they'd get like, like two views over like, or two views a day over like 30 days or whatever. So like just uh-huh. nothing. And what ended up changing was I realized that quality is probably better than quantity in a lot of cases. Right. Uh, for YouTube, it's the exact opposite. You just want to get content out. And if it's not as great, you can kind of figure it out. 
or improved over time. Of course, having uh, lots of content and high quality is great. It's not always realistic. So like I've had blogs and I just rewrote over time and got them better. So like mm-hmm. they used to go from like two views a day to like 500 views a day now. Right. That's really interesting because <laughs> podcasts somewhere in the middle. But yeah, you know, most of your advice as far as just starting out, that's what I tell people too. It's just like, look, you just get going. I mean, there's some fundamentals you have to have. You have to have artwork and you have to mm-hmm. be able to record the audio and stuff. But yeah, just getting stuff out there. You have to know why you're doing it. Yeah. So what outcome? You're doing mm-hmm. it to get a job. You're doing it to become well-known. You're doing it to be sell a product. Yeah. All of that yeah. stuff applies equally here. And then the difference is, is yeah, with blog posts, yeah, the quality makes sense, right? And you're essentially playing the who's going to share it and SEO game to get found. With YouTube, it's the algorithm game and getting people to keep coming back to your channel. And with the podcast game is to get people to subscribe because once they're subscribed, it'll tell it'll keep pushing the next episode to their phone. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's just understanding how how people consume the content and get more of it. But yeah, yeah I think the difference also that you mentioned with like like podcasts versus YouTube versus like blogs is like I flubbed a lot of this like episode, this like podcast. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, we'll clean it up. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean, but like that's that's fine. But um, and I listen to it and try to fix it for like later stuff. But for blogging, uh-huh. you, can, you can fix it later. Yeah. Um, and that's the the power of a blog. Like I have all the YouTube videos out there and they are terrible. Just like, <laughs> what did I, was I do with my life? I can't go back and fix the the ums or there's a really terrible video for like PCA for me out there where I just say like, okay, like a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrible video. Whereas like blogging, you can always improve it over time. So for blog, it's probably the easiest barrier to entry um, versus like podcasting YouTube, I would say. That's true. That is mm-hmm. very true because all you have to do is type it, right? Yeah. And then you can go back and fix it later. Yeah. That's the biggest thing is just get it out there and make it better over time. Yeah. So there's a lot of actual like studies about people are more likely to read your blogs if you actually put time to them. So you can mm-hmm. always post it and just increase the, the effort in there over time. Cool. I want to ask you a little bit about developer advocacy as well, because typically we get people on and they're either like hardcore PhD candidates or they're enthusiasts, but they're like way down in the weeds of, hey, I'm building these algorithms and and it's way fun. We typically don't get people who are more on kind of the, I think of developer advocates as kind of straddling the, the spheres of the technologist and the marketing and so, yeah, first of all, do you want to just kind of explain what your typical day or week or maybe even month looks like? And then talk about how you got into it and what kind of person ought to be thinking about kind of making that career move as opposed to staying in the technology. So like software engineering, like a lot of different jobs, it really depends on the company you're working for. Mm-hmm. So developer relations is typically, I say it's typically, because it's not always true, is often about uh, more than just writing code. So it's like about building relationships, getting feedback uh, from other teams, uh, getting feedback from your users, uh, sometimes helping like users like work through challenges. So some ways like helping others with their code and basically trying to grow a community in a lot of cases. So they vary like very widely. So I'll tell you about like what like DevRel's like what I do, and then I can talk mm-hmm. about like what other people do. 
Because what I do is probably very different than what other people do. So like for, for my job, I work at AnyScale, which is basically about making like a universal laptop, like scaling your laptop uh, to the cloud. So I work at a smaller company and it's a great company and we work on the Ray project, which you should start on GitHub. But I mean, so some of it's, you know, marketing or putting plugs in or whatever. So a lot of my work is about like writing about distributed computing. This can be like writing it myself or editing things. It could be things like if I'm making content, sometimes it's about like advertising, like a conference, like the Ray Summit conference coming up. So you can see like a lot of it's like putting in different plugs for uh, different things you're working on. So some of it for a lot of people is like working on documentation um, and answering questions on various forums. So like some companies, it's really important to just get feedback from the users, help them out. So that's one thing. If you're on the more marketing end of things, sometimes you also might take like a bit of a content marketing approach. Mm-hmm. So this could be like if you're active on Twitter or LinkedIn or sometimes depending on what you're doing, it could be even graphic design like a pinch. So that's like it really is uh, gain the like it's very much a gambit kind of job. Right. A, a lot more common thing if you're at a bigger company is sometimes you write code, like write code for production occasionally. This can be things that are like frontward facing code, like mm-hmm. doc, code for documentation or code for a product, give demos. It depends on what your job is. Developer relations is just this giant amount of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. So if it's essentially just to keep it really short, it's very widespread for small companies and for big companies, it's a lot more like exact. Right. So always look at a job description and then ask the interviewer, like, what, what are you doing <laughs> or what the job is? Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, before we do picks, if people want to find you online or connect with you in some way, where do they typically do that? So it can be on Twitter at Glarnick Michael. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Feel free to add me, chat with me, whatever. Uh, you can also, I guess, reach out through any other way possible. If you Google my name, you'll probably see a bunch of random things. So feel free to contact me through those mediums. Yeah, whatever works. All right, sounds good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll put links to as much of that as we can find on sure. the show notes. And if you want to put any of that in the chat, that also will wind up in the show notes. And then, yeah, let's go ahead and do picks. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. I'll go ahead and go first so you can kind of just see how I do it. And then we'll uh, we'll let you shout out about whatever you feel like. So I'm going to shout out about a few things. Uh, the first one that I'm going to shout out about, I've been reading these books. The next book in the book series came out, and that's why I've been reading them. It's The Stormlight Archives by Brandon Sanderson. Ah. Um, and yeah, the next book came out in October of last year or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just slow getting through them because I typically listen to podcasts 
Mm-hmm. And then I listen to business books and stuff. And so I, I kind of listen to those when I have spare time or just kind of chilling or going to sleep. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm getting through Edge Dancer, which is kind of the the novella. It's not really one of the books, but it's between books two and three. And mm-hmm. anyway, so that's that's something I've been enjoying. I've actually been to Cosmere House because it's 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 over by my kid's school. I live in Utah. Mm-hmm. And one of my friends helps manage the warehouse where all of the he sends out all of his stuff. Wow. You, you can go order uh, stuff like T-shirts and socks and stuff. And yeah, one of my friends from high school works for him. So <laughs> he's like, do you want to come see Cosmere House? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> of so, course. So. I mean, I used to listen to uh, his Miss Bourne like saga. Yeah. It was such a good series. He's been writing for so long. Like it's just yeah. absolutely amazing. He's so um, prolific too. I think it's the biggest thing. Like you have authors that you really like and sometimes don't write often. I'm uh, looking at you like Patrick Rothfuss. <laughs> yeah. The Name of the Wind, that whole series. Like book two was published in like 2008, maybe. Like the Westman yeah. It's I'm still waiting for it. Yep. Yeah. And apparently he hates it when people ask when book three is coming out. But I don't think it's unreasonable given that it's been like 12 years. Yeah, anyway. I would say that's, that's probably, I mean, that or just say I'm not writing right now or I'm taking like a decade break or whatever. Yeah, um, or two. Or two, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, so I just finished Words of Radiance and I've been reading Edge Dancer and I've been enjoying that. So that's one pick. And then, yeah, the other pick that I have is I just bought a truck. Now, it's it's not a new truck. It's a 1994 F-250. Mm-hmm. And the people that I bought it from, they had like gone to junkyards and stuff and had mm-hmm. fixed it. So it runs great. It, but yeah, I, I'm just going to advocate for buying used cars because I don't think I've ever, besides the cars that I buy for my wife, for her to yeah. get around in, I don't think I've ever spent more than $3,000 on a car that I drive. And I usually am able to find decent vehicles. And so I'm pretty happy with that. And yeah, I just found it out of local classifieds which is still a thing. So I'm going to shout out for local classifieds. Actually, I'll give a shout out on my end. I wrote a blog about the cost of financing a car. Mm-hmm. Like if you just Google it, I really agree with you about trying not to oh, buy yeah. new things. It's extraordinarily expensive. If you look at like like compound interest rates and oh, yeah. origination costs for loans, it's ridiculous. It's I think there's a lot of uh, people out there that talk about like how much Americans lose by car payments. So if you have like a, a thirty thousand dollar car and your car payments, mm-hmm. let's say six hundred bucks or seven hundred bucks, whatever it is, five hundred bucks. Now that's a lot of money that can go into retirement and savings and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. So boy, we're practically brothers. Holy cow! Yeah, yeah. I haven't financed a car in about ten years, and I mean, I don't think we ever financed a car that costs us more than like hundred fifty or two hundred bucks a month. But man, it is just nice not having to deal with a car payment. So. Yeah, you can retire earlier. <laughs> yeah, something like that. My goal is to be doing stuff that I love for the rest of my life. So I don't want to retire. But. You have the freedom too, if you need to, though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's the point, right? Is, you know, I'm doing what I love. And then, yeah, I have some kind of accident or illness or something. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, I can't do this anymore, right? I just for physically can't. Or something happens and I have to dedicate full time to taking care of one of my kids or my wife or something. Yeah. I have the option too. That's the, the, the deal. Right. But yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, so those are my picks. What are your picks? So 
I mean, no one's gonna be able to see this on a podcast, but like success is an iceberg. This is like my kind of thing about life. It's uh, what I'm showing right now is like embroidery. Um, this is, I got this from Mauricia Stu. She's on Instagram. It's such a random thing, but a lot of times with like success and like, like job hunting, even writing, there's a lot of like times, especially for, for like blogging or whatever, where like it is not going well. You're wondering like when something's get done or like you got fired from a job or whatever. I really just always try to get people to like realize that it life is hard sometimes, but if you persevere, you can do well and success mm -hmm. may look easy, but it, it takes a lot of effort and work. So That's so true. Yeah. And as far as like book series, uh, there's a book series by Olin Thurnson and it's called Destiny's Crucible. He was, I believe he was like a, a researcher. It's about this guy getting cast off on like an alien planet, essentially. And they equipped to like the 1800s and he has to kind of like, you know, navigate his way in the world. So uh -huh. anyway, it's such an interesting series. Not perfect by any means, but definitely a great series. I also, I like authors. That's probably the biggest one. So like you like Brandon Sanderson and he has like, he's very prolific about getting things done he's very good about like telling you like when updates are yeah. he gets things done he finished a wheel of time i believe right mm -hmm. um so he gets things done what about like like about like Orin, olin thornson um is he was an academic he's published like hundreds of papers all this sort of stuff and then his like second career when he's getting older is like writing and he's doing a really great job same thing for in a different way, Alaron Kong, he does like lit RPG stuff. You've probably not heard of it. And his series, The Land, like he was a, an MD. So like he got his, he went through med school and like he started writing a series. He did really well. I like people like that. They're just like really successful or really ambitious where they have multiple careers or multiple things going for them. Yeah. My little tangent. <laughs> awesome. Love it. Yeah. All right. Well, if you can get links to the stuff that you talked about in the chat, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. And yeah, thanks for coming. This was a lot of fun, fun to chat about, fun to dive into. And yeah, thanks for coming. And thanks for your time. I know I'm not a perfect guest in any way, and I hope people learn something from this podcast and grow in some way, shape or form. Well, I love the approach. I, I love being exposed to new tools. And honestly, some of it's just that, hey, we got real people on the show, right? I think I think a lot of times we kind of see the polish of like uh, this American life or something. Mm -hmm. And people think, oh, well, it has to be all perfect on the, on the podcast. Mm -hmm. But what I find when I talk to people is that some people listen and they're like, I learned a lot. And I love that there's personality. I love that you screw up sometimes. I love that I can can just kind of identify with you being kind of a guy from Utah, that your guests are just folks from other places, that you'll make a dad joke here in a, every once in a while, right? And that I can learn something in the process, right? And so they're listening, yeah, for the information, but they're also listening because they feel like they got to hang out with you and I for a little bit. So yeah, it's all good. Thanks. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up right here, though. And yeah, thanks once again. And until next time, folks, max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.